la hola. Ladies, such a blessing to be with everyone again today. Um, I really am so grateful and blessed to be here. And for the ladies who might be listening in Spanish, ya saben que las quiero mucho y oro que este estudio sea de bendición. So, like Lauren said, today we're going to attempt <laughs> to do a review of the Pentateuch, a review of the first five books of the Bible. They're not the shortest books. And as I thought and thought and prayed and prayed about this lesson, I was brought back again and again to the same truth that we've been taught, that in the Pentateuch, God is showing Israel that he will be their God, that they will be his people, and that he will dwell with them in the land, which is another way of saying, right, that God wanted his home to be Israel's home, which by his grace will include us if we've repented and believed in his son. So we could ask, what will be the best part of being home with God? What makes home feel like home? Is it, you know, the beauty of home, the location of home? Is it the walls or the furniture or the decorations? Maybe the best part of home is the food. Hmm? Well, really, what makes home attractive, what makes home home, are the people at home, right? The people. The promised land would be a land filled with flowing with milk and honey, and Christ's millennial kingdom will be incredible, and in heaven there will be no more tears nor sin. But what both Israel and all believers anticipate about dwelling with God, about being in God's home, is not the place itself, but the person who's there. The person who's there. God himself is what will make the land, the kingdom, so wonderful. And God himself is what will make heaven so wonderful. So in these nine months, along with Israel, we've learned through the Pentateuch how wonderful God himself is. And that'll be the focus of our review today. Truths about God that we've learned in the Pentateuch. Truths about God that we've learned in the Pentateuch. Here at the end of these five books, we see that younger generation of Israelites on the plains of Moab, ready to cross the Jordan and enter the land. And then we remember their parents, the first generation. They had grown up in an idolatrous nation, a pagan nation with a culture that profoundly corrupted their thinking. And although they'd been delivered from slavery, even from death in Egypt, that country still had their hearts, didn't it? Stephen says about them in Acts 7.39, Acts 7.39, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Though the first generation saw the 10 plagues, in person, though they crossed the sea on dry land, though they followed the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, though God provided perfect food and water for them daily, they didn't even have to grow their own crops. And even their clothes, even their sandals, can we imagine, did not wear out for decades. 
still most of them refused to love God. Honestly, Moses was like a lot of missionaries who see so few people saved. And that was why most of the first generation was so disobedient to God. In fact, they were so disobedient that we read in Joshua 5.5, Joshua 5.5, that all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Can you believe that? All the people, not some, but all who were born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. Isn't that loco? Isn't that crazy? In these nine months, we've learned that circumcision was the sign of God's loyal love for Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, right? Even Jacob, who was not the most godly guy in the Bible, even Jacob's sons were circumcised. Circumcision was like the most basic form of obedience that the Israelites could show. But their disobedience went even deeper. The first generation refused to circumcise their heart. They refused to repent of their sin. Deuteronomy 10, 16. And God said in Psalm 95, 10, Psalm 95, 10, that generation, the first generation of the Exodus are a people who wander in their heart. The Israelites didn't just wander in the wilderness. They wandered away from God in their hearts, in their desires, in their affections, in the deepest part of their being. And you know, this could be true for some of us here today. Perhaps some of us are still unbelievers and also wander away from God in the heart. Maybe someone here is like the Israelites. We've seen God's glory in this Bible study in these nine months. We've seen that God gives us life and breath and all things, just like he gave bread and water to Israel. But maybe someone here also refuses to love God and obey his word. Perhaps someone here still refuses to circumcise their heart. Perhaps someone here still refuses to repent of their sin and believe in God's salvation through his son. And why is this? Jesus said that even though all people can see evidence of God's existence like Israel did, like we've done in these months, most people don't believe in him because according to John 3.19, remember John 3.19, men loved the darkness rather than the light. And that was the problem with the Israelites, not just in the Pentateuch, but for all of their history. You see, the problem with every unbeliever is not a lack of information about the existence of God, but a love of sin. It's an issue of love. So today, as we review the Pentateuch, if you continue to reject Christ, we beg you one more time to repent and believe Ask God to circumcise your heart. He wants to, to give you a new heart, new desires, new longings to love and obey him instead of loving and practicing sin. Ask him to treat you as if you'd live the perfect life of Jesus in your place. So maybe some of us are unbelieving 
like the first generation, or maybe some of us are children of unbelievers, like the second generation. Perhaps you get discouraged because you didn't have parents who taught you the Bible or gave you an example of obedience to God. But because of the Pentateuch, because of what we learned these nine months, all of us, with whatever background we have, just like the new generation of Israelites about to enter the promised land, we have God's word to guide us. Just like Israel, we have God's guidebook. So the Pentateuch gave the Israelites and has given us the most fundamental truths that we'll need for the rest of our lives. Although the second generation would enter that promised land without parents, without even uncles or aunts or grandparents, can you imagine? They would be a a whole generation of orphans. But because of the Pentateuch, they would not be without guidance, and neither are we. So today, unlike that first generation, let's come to the Pentateuch with circumcised hearts, with repentant hearts of faith in God. And like the second generation, let's find our guidance from God as we review two crucial truths in the Pentateuch that help us to love God. That's the title of our lesson today. Two crucial truths in the Pentateuch that help us to love God. And you can see those two truths on your notes. Today, as we review the Pentateuch, we'll review truth about God's character in the Pentateuch, which helps us to love him. God's character in the Pentateuch, which helps us to love him. And secondly, real briefly, we'll review truth about God's care for women in the Pentateuch, which helps us to love him. Because we are in the women's Bible study, right? A little bit about God's care for women in the Pentateuch. But one more thing, there's always one more thing. One more thing before we get into our lesson. The Pentateuch has taught us that loving God is expressed in obeying God. Loving God is expressed in obeying God. Moses says this in Deuteronomy over and over. The passage we keep going back to, right? Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And how do we love Yahweh? Verse 6. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart, which is another way of saying, be obedient. Be controlled by God's word. Jesus says the same in John 14, 15. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if we've repented and believed in Jesus as members of the new covenant, we're commanded in Colossians 3.16, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So both for Israel and for us, we express our love for God by allowing his word to control us by obeying scripture. So as we review the Pentateuch, let's always remember that both Israel's obedience and our obedience to God, it cannot save us, okay? Salvation has always been, from the beginning, by grace through faith, which means that their obedience and our obedience is always only an expression of love for God. Obedience to God doesn't earn our salvation. It doesn't get us credit with God. Obedience is just an expression of love to God once we're saved. So there, now we're ready for the lesson, right? Okay, in first place, let's review 
truth about God's character in the Pentateuch. Truth about God's character in the Pentateuch, which helps us to love him. And this is going to be the longer point in our outlines, so don't worry if it goes for a while. Mm -hmm. Let's start in Genesis. For each book, we'll review a little of its content and a little of God's character. A little content, a little character. And in Genesis alone, <clears throat> we covered thousands of years of primeval and patriarchal history. And we saw so many of God's attributes, right? His eternality, omnipotence, omniscience, goodness, justice. But above all else, we could say that we saw that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In other words, in Genesis, we learned right away that God is God. God is God. Pretty much within that first sentence of the Pentateuch, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And whoa, right away we have a decision to make. Will we believe this book? Will we believe the Bible and take it at face value? Or will we put ourselves and our thinking and our ideas above this book and make ourselves the judges, the authority, the sovereign? The question right away in the Pentateuch is, am I the judge of this book or is this book the judge of me? Am I the sovereign or is God the sovereign? And it's apparent in Genesis that God himself isn't embarrassed about being in charge, about being sovereign. We saw his sovereignty in creation, in the Tower of ba Babel, in the flood, and in the unfolding of his perfect sovereign plan to choose and to save through the Messiah, the future Savior, the seed, who will defeat Satan. And we got that memorized, right, ladies? In the Abrahamic, promise, in the Abrahamic covenant, God had a sovereign plan to give his people what? Land, seed, and blessing. Very good. Okay. But Genesis teaches us that our sovereign God is not far away, only concerned about eternal covenants or wars or worldwide floods. Genesis shows us that he's accomplishing all of those enormous events while also controlling being sovereign over every tiny, tiny moment, over all the details, right? He finds Adam in the garden. He hears the voice of Abel's blood. He knows the pain of Cain Abel's parents. He's aware of Noah's shame. He sees and cares for Hagar, the slave, the single mother. He knows the abandonment of Abraham by Lot. He sees the loneliness of Leah and the desperation of Rachel. He overrides the manipulation of wages by Laban and the injustice towards the widow, Tamar. He knows the deceit of Jacob of Jacob's father-in-law and Jacob's sons. And he's with Joseph in prison. So as we remember God's sovereignty in Genesis over both the big and the little things, we're helped to express our love to God in obedience because he controls our lives too. As daughters, as single women, as wives, as mothers, as women who can't have children or as widows, God's sovereign over all of it. And God's good. God's good. From the very beginning, from Genesis, God has shown us his character. And we know, as we know his character, just like the people in Genesis, we can express our love to him 
in obedience, even when we don't know what's going to happen, like they didn't, right? So before giving his law and the rest of the Pentateuch, first, God takes this whole book to show us that we can trust him. And then we get to Exodus. And here we see a little of its content and God's character too. And in Exodus, primarily we see God's deliverance of Israel, that God is a savior, that God is a saving God. He's sovereign, but he's also the savior. And in Exodus, we saw, remember, God's wise law, which was incredible. We saw Israel's crazy cow worship, which was awful. And we saw the construction of the tabernacle, which was vital because it shows us that God dwells with his people, which of course reminds us of that theme of the Pentateuch. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you in the land. And God will get his people to that land because God is a savior. And this will be the recurring theme of the rest of scripture. Just as God saved or delivered his people, from slavery in Egypt, he saves and delivers his people from slavery to sin. If he could deliver them from Egypt, he can deliver us from hell. And Dr. Chow, amazing, the guy is so amazing, so he helps us to understand all these books. And Dr. Chow points out that Exodus shows us how God used the plagues to save, to deliver his people physically, but God will use the tribulation, which are like really big plagues, right? God will use the tribulation, the ultimate plagues, to finally, finally save his people spiritually. After the tribulation at last, all Israel will be saved. So what else? Exodus shows us that God will not only save Israel, but God will use Israel to save others. Just like us, the Israelites were called out of slavery to be a testimony to the world. So Exodus teaches us that God is a savior. And just like Israel, when we express our love to God in obedience, we point others to God's salvation, God's supernatural power to save. And after that, we get to Leviticus and we remember a little of its content and God's character. And in Leviticus, we saw that God is not only our sovereign savior, but also that God is holy. God is holy. We could say sacred, you know, because I wanted to use another word that started with S. Sovereign, savior, sacred, but, but holy is the biblical term to use. So Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. And there we learn how in his holiness, God gave Israel the sacrificial system, the offerings, the priests, the Levites, the law, the festivals, all of it so that sinful, unholy man could have a relationship with sinless, holy God. What grace, what grace. And that's probably not a concept that we associated with the book of Leviticus before this year's Bible study, right? grace. <laughs> but throughout Leviticus, we were pointed again and again to the perfect and final sacrifice of the holy Lord Jesus in the place of sinners, and that is undeserved grace. Also, Leviticus taught us that unlike what our world says, 
There is only one way to God. And not only is there only one way to God, but God himself has chosen that way. To avert God's wrath, we learn in Leviticus there must be a sacrifice. We can't dwell with God on our own. Which is why in the book of Leviticus, we learn that God not only demands a holy sacrifice, but that God demands holy living. Yes, God wants to dwell with his people, but they must be holy like him in order for him to dwell with them. Again, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And then practically speaking, Leviticus taught us that all service is to the Lord, right? All service is to the Lord, whether carrying wooden poles for the tabernacle like they did or changing diapers or making photocopies at work. Not all of the Israelites were priests and not all Christians are leaders in the church, but all service is to the Lord. And something I loved to learn in Leviticus was how the Levites would have been stationed all through the country of Israel with the purpose of teaching God's word to his people. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? Can you imagine a country filled with godly men scattered perfectly throughout it to teach God's word in each geographical area? Well, according to Leviticus, that was God's design for Israel. The Levites and priests, the festivals and offerings would have helped the Israelites to express their love for God in obedience, to live in holiness, just like our pastors and our church help us to express our love for God in obedience, in holiness. And everything looks so good, so perfectly set up, right, for the nation of Israel. But then we get to the book of Numbers. Numbers. So the content of Numbers and a little of the character of God in Numbers and as we were taught in our homework, the book of Numbers is all about obedience, disobedience, and renewed obedience. Sounds like our lives, doesn't it? Obedience, and this could be like within a few minutes in the morning. Obedience, <laughs> disobedience, renewed obedience, right? So the book of Numbers humbles me. It humbles me because like Israel, I disobey so much too. But why do we disobey? Well, Numbers teaches us that the reason for disobedience is unbelief in God. Unbelief in God when we're not trusting God. But in spite of their unbelief, we learn in Numbers that not only is God sovereign, savior, and holy, but that we learn that God is faithful. God is faithful. They might be unfaithful, we might be unfaithful, but God is always faithful. But here's the thing. In Numbers, we saw God's faithfulness to Israel by blessing their obedience. But we also saw God's faithfulness to Israel by punishing their disobedience too. And the Israelites expressed a lot of their disobedience in something that looks so small, doesn't it? They expressed their disobedience in grumbling, in complaining. The complaining spies said in Numbers, Numbers 13, 31, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. And you know, from a purely physical point of view, that was true. 
the Israelites were not strong enough. But who was? God. God was strong enough. In fact, as Dr. Chow says, Israel would have been like the main characters in an action movie. The main characters in an action movie. Bullets flying all around them, dinosaurs chasing them, bombs exploding, but the stars of the movie never get hit, right? <laughs> well, when Israel was obedient, that's exactly what happened in each of their battles. God was faithful to protect Israel perfectly when they obeyed. And someone has said, the safest place to be is in obedience to God's word. But Numbers also shows us that God was faithful to punish Israel when they disobeyed. So the most dangerous place to be is in disobedience to God's word. All of that first generation died in the wilderness, except for Caleb and Joshua. So Numbers reminds us, like we've seen all through the Pentateuch, that if God has faithfully fulfilled all his promises in these five books, he will faithfully fulfill all the promises he has made to us. Numbers shows us that we can trust God and that we can express our love and obedience to him because God is faithful. And finally, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Let's review a bit of its content and God's character in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we've been hearing Moses explaining and applying the law, explaining and applying the law, preaching, right? Preaching to that new generation who are now ready to enter the land. And I love this book because I love good sermons. Mm, I love good sermons. Mm. And the best sermons always teach us about God and exhort us to obey him. And that's exactly what Moses does in Deuteronomy. He reviews with the Israelites all that God has done. And then over and over in Deuteronomy, Moses teaches Israel that they should obey God because God loves. God loves. Genesis, God's sovereign. Exodus, God saves. Leviticus, God's holy. Numbers, God's faithful. And Deuteronomy, God loves. God loves. Moses reminds the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10, 15, Deuteronomy 10, 15, on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples. So here's the so, the what to do, the application of the sermon. So circumcise your heart. Circumcise your heart. In other words, God loves you, Israel, so you should repent and express your love to him in obedience, right? So throughout Deuteronomy, Moses repeats God's commands to Israel, applies them to their new life in the promised land, and tells them how to love God back. Express your love to God in loyal obedience because God loyally loves you. Deuteronomy teaches us that because of who God is, because of what God's done, because of the character of God and the content of these five books, Israel owed God everything. And we do too. We owe God everything. So the Pentateuch has shown us why Israel and why we should love or obey God. We should express our love to God in obedience 
because he's our sovereign, saving, holy, faithful, and loving God. In a word, God is perfect. God is perfect. So in first place today, like I said, it was going to be a long point. In first place today, these truths about God's character in the Pentateuch should help us to love him. And secondly, before we finish, for just a few minutes, let's review some key truths in the Pentateuch about God's care for women. God's care for women in the Pentateuch. We've seen God's character, and now for just a little bit, let's see God's care. Because God's care for women in the Pentateuch also helps us to love him. And there's a sense in which this is just another part, another aspect of God's character that we learned about already. But for us, I know women's Bible study, I see women here. So this is a comforting part of God's perfect character. And all through the Pentateuch, we saw over and over God's compassion and care for all those who are vulnerable, including women. A lot of people say that the God of the Old Testament, you might have heard this, that he didn't care about women, that he was a machista, no? A male chauvinist. But nothing, that's a good vocabulary word, machista, okay? Male chauvinist, but nothing could be further from the truth. People who say such things don't study the Bible properly. Which reminds us, a little side note here, of another crucial issue for us when we've been reviewing the Pentateuch. If there has been something, a verse or a passage here and there that we didn't, you know, understand at first glance, then we shouldn't doubt. We shouldn't doubt. What we should do is be humbled. We should be humbled. If nothing else, studying the Pentateuch in these nine months has humbled us. It's shown us how very limited we are, right, in understanding God and and his word. It's been a, a challenge at times. But we need to come to scripture with humility, not with doubt and pride. So let's review God's care for women in the Pentateuch, which helps us to love him, which is expressed in obeying him. God cared way back in the beginning. God cared by creating men and women equal in value, but different in roles. That a husband provide for and protect his wife, and that a wife be his perfect complement. So beautiful. God cared by designing marriage for one man and one woman for life, which prohibited automatically adultery, polygamy, homosexuality, and any other sexual sin. And we've seen it before, but it bears repeating. God cared. Did we notice the details? God cared about Sarah's thoughts. (laughs) He cared about Hagar's cries, about Leah's loneliness, Rachel's barrenness, Rebecca's difficult pregnancy, the midwives who obeyed him and Moses' mother, who feared God more than the most powerful leader in the world. And what else? God cared by allowing Miriam to lead other women in worship. And he cared by disciplining her when she was rebellious, just like he disciplined Moses and Aaron when they were rebellious. God cared by allowing women to participate in worship in the sanctuary and later in the worship choirs by allowing women to weave 
the curtains of the tabernacle by allowing women to make offerings and even to own property. That would have been revolutionary. God cared by punishing adultery, by punishing covetousness, fornication, rape, incest, by punishing false accusations against a wife. And God cared for wives being divorced, like Jesus said, by hard-hearted husbands. God cared by protecting widows and all vulnerable people, like orphans, the poor, slaves, and my favorite, foreigners. But in my opinion, the most wonderful truth that we see about God's care for women in the Pentateuch is that God commanded that all his people, including women and children, listen to the reading of his word. Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 12. Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 12. God commanded that they would hear his word. In a time period when so few people had access to written material and so few people could even read, God desired, God even commanded that women hear the scripture. God didn't want women separated from where they could hear God's word proclaimed. Bible commentators point out that it was not God's idea to create a separate court of the women in the temple. That idea was a man-made restriction not found in God's plans. And have you thought about this? The very fact that we're all here today in a women's Bible study is exactly because God cares about us. Bible students tell us that in Jesus' time, the Jews refused to teach women. But our pastors, remember, and our seminary professors have come here to teach us because they care about us like God does. Just like God, they want us to know him. And when they teach us the Bible, our pastors and our professors are following God's example because God incarnate, our Lord Jesus, he who perfectly fulfilled the whole Pentateuch, Jesus cared enough about women to let them hear his word. And I believe that those women and all people who sat at Jesus' feet would have realized what we've learned in these nine months in the Pentateuch, what we've learned about Jesus in the Pentateuch, Jesus in the Pentateuch, that Jesus is the rightful seed, the Savior that Eve longed for, that Jesus is the substitute that Isaac prefigured, that Jesus was the ladder of Jacob, that Jesus was the fighter, the fighter for Israel, that Jesus would be the future king from the tribe of Judah, the great I am, the true Passover lamb, the true manna, the bread of life, the rock who sustained Israel in the wilderness, the priest better than Aaron, the perfect sacrifice to finally take away sins, the one who Israel could believe in to be saved, who was pointed to, remember, by the raised serpent in the desert, the star and the scepter that was prophesied in Numbers, and the better prophet than even Moses. So these truths about God's character and God's care help us to love and obey him because he is so worthy of our love.
He's so worthy of our lives. He's so worthy of our loyalty, our obedience, isn't he? Moses says to Israel at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 33, 27. Is that 33? Yes. Okay. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is, is a dwelling place. And the Apostle John says to us in the New Covenant, in Revelation 21, 22, Revelation 21, 22, the Apostle, Apostle John says about heaven, I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. Again, the best part about dwelling with God will not be the place but the person who's there, right? That's what we've learned in the Pentateuch. The best part about dwelling with God will not be the place, but the perfect person who's there, God himself. So in conclusion, when we're discouraged or worried or fearful or sick or lonely or doubtful, when we're, you know, just tired and tempted, when the schoolwork never ends or no guy asks you out, when your parents frustrate you or your work overwhelms you, when your husband is difficult and your children exhaust you, when you're sick or alone, when you've been betrayed and maligned, or when you're persecuted or you're in danger, God himself, the perfect God that we've met in these five books, he reminds us to look to him. Look to him. Hebrews 12, 12, 2. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Why? Verse 3, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's why we've been memorizing Hebrews 11. And that's why we've been studying the Pentateuch. Because these truths about God's character and God's care help us. Help us to love and obey him. God wants to circumcise our hearts. He wants us to repent of our sin and ask him to treat us as if we'd lived that perfect life of his son. And that is the way that he can bring us to his home. Not just to enjoy the beauties of heaven, but to finally enjoy him in person forever. So let's pray to thank him for that. Hmm? Let's pray. Our beloved Father, thank you for allowing us to know you better this year through the Pentateuch. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. You're so kind. You're so perfect. You're so wonderful. And Lord, we would beg you again that every woman here would have a repentant heart that you would give every woman here a repentant heart to love and obey you. And we ask for your help to express our love to you, Lord, in obedience. And we thank you that Jesus perfectly obeyed you so that he could take the place of anyone who repents and believes in him for salvation. We long for the day, Lord, when faith will be made sight and we will finally dwell with you, not because of anything we've done, but because of who 
you are because of your perfection. And until that day, Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself in us. Amen.